good people. You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I am the host of the show. Episode 31 of Feel Free to Deviate features Viva Butler. Viva is a teacher who spent many of her formative years traveling and working in cooperatives and food service, including an indie chocolate company. Now she's a teacher who lives at and maintains a retreat in the Berkshires with her partner and a tiny activist who happens to be her daughter. We talk about her circuitous journey towards uncertainty, but also how walking the proverbial walk has generally served her well over the course of her life. I must admit that I was intimidated by the task of editing this one. I put it off for weeks because it was a long talk with lots of twists and lots of turns. But today, as I record this, I'm not quite sure what I was freaked out about. I really like this episode. It was a great talk, and for some reason, it all makes perfect sense to me in a way that it didn't in the beginning of July when we spoke to each other. I can't explain why, but I will say that you gotta listen to the whole thing to get the picture. The passion builds towards the end, and the end is really good. We talk about her life being a a vagabond's journey or a quest, and the episode is sort of like that as well. We touch on a lot of very pertinent things, and even if you aren't an off-the-grid vagabond, I think you may be surprised how many thoughts and feelings you share with Viva. Or, if you don't share them, you can relate, or at the very least, understand. On the other hand, that could just be me identifying with her and her plight. If it's too long for you, pause it, come back later, because podcasts are on demand. Start your journey now. Rest if you need to, come back when you're ready. This is my conversation with Viva Butler. Thanks for being a part of this. I'm sort of intrigued. Uh, I wasn't really sure how to prepare for this one because, yeah, I'm just kind of curious about what your deal is. Me too. Maybe we can figure it out together. <laughs> It'll be glorious. <laughs> Why don't we start off with you introducing yourself and talk about how you identify as a person. Like how, when someone says, hey, what do you do? So uh, my name is Beva. If if you ask me what I do. Yes, I probably say I'm an educator. I was a teacher for 10-ish years, start and stop classroom teacher, primarily of sixth graders. My initial stint was in elementary school, so that, you know, K-6 elementary public schools. And then when we moved to Massachusetts, I did end up taking a job in Springfield that was a startup middle school that was just introducing fifth grade that year. And I was part of the startup of that. And that was a charter. I left that when I had Sabine. Um, we had our daughter. I um, thought I would go back. I thought I would take maternity leave and go back, but it felt crazy to do that. And we also had um, a chocolate factory at the time. So, yes. Chocolate. Yeah, that's the other thing. I know your your podcast is about success or ideas of success in some way, shape or form. So so um, in terms of success, like it, the chocolate won a bunch of awards, Colin won a bunch of awards. It was very interesting to be a part of. In many ways, I was pretty peripheral. Um, I funded it because <laughs> I was teaching <laughs> in Minnesota. And so like I did, you know, you could just say you could call yourself the, the producer. <laughs> right. Right. But I I didn't, you know, and then I worked for him at various points in time, but I didn't do any work that was like central to making those awards happen or that success happen. So yeah, so I I, I started this this charter school job and it was crazy and intense and had the kid and was like, yeah, I'm never going to see my own kid if I keep working. So I stopped 2013 was when she was born and then just worked with Colin in the factory basically until she went to kindergarten. So I had five years where I was doing that. We moved in with his parents in Worcester because we didn't have enough money from that chocolate factory to 
pay rent or do anything. Our daughter got to have preschool daycare with us in the factory. It was this huge factory building. It's actually the old Tampax factory in Massachusetts. Nice. Uh-huh, I know. <laughs> and um, we had the cafeteria space, so we had, which was all empty. And so she like ran around and learned to ride her bike and in the cafeteria space in this weird little town. Three Rivers is the town. It's the middle of nowhere. There was also sort of this period of time of unraveling of needing to close the business. But we definitely needed to move out of Worcester because we'd also sort of picked a school for her. You know, I, I, So we'd gone to visit this Shootsbury school. We had liked it when we visited it a lot and had decided we wanted her to go there. And so we were looking for a place to live over here, but financially just absolutely could not do it and ended up in a bunch of different sublets for her first year of kindergarten. And I went back to teaching. A job came up mid-year in that same Springfield charter school. So I went to that. And so I went back to that school in a sixth grade position for half the year, her first year of kindergarten. And in the meantime, I was on a council of this place where we now live, which is a retreat center, a non-denominational off-grid retreat center that has individual cabins that people rent and also a lodge that's a bigger space, but used to get used for much more like dance programs and yoga things and spiritual workshops, you know, but now it's, I mean, even pre COVID that had stuff had sort of started to drop because there just aren't as many, you know, seventies and eighties sort of post hippies who want to get 12 people together and chant. It sounds awful to me, but I, (laughs) I, I, so I totally understand why that's not a thing anymore, but, um, but it's nice that there's a space for them to do it if, if they want to. (laughs) They want to. I I, I can think of many other things that I would rather do in, in, in a big (laughs) space like that in the middle of a nice wooded area. But that, yeah, sadly, that's, well, sadly, just actually, that's not one of them. How, how does one find themselves in the position where they're taking care of a, a place like this? For a lot of people, it's just this, like, beautiful, quiet space in the woods, and you can rent these little mostly furnished cabins that have wood stoves. During the years that we were living with my partner's parents in Worcester and then working at the factory sort of seven days a week, we would come to a point, you know, we didn't like take scheduled days off, but we'd come to a point where we were going crazy. And we had been like driving to various places up in Maine or New Hampshire that were affordable places for rent to rent so I could get away from his parents and not kill them um, (laughs) for a couple of days. And my mom found this place, which is much closer in some silly little arts magazine and was like, Hey, do you guys know about this place? And we did not, we had never heard of it, which can, actually a bunch of people in this town still have never heard of it, even though it came into existence in the late 70s. So we came up here for a visit and sort of fell in love with it when we walked up here, but ended up renting a cabin and then doing that because it was just much closer. So we did that a few different times. The place runs with an unpaid council. It runs on consensus. And then they just, they have two employees. Typically they've had two employees. They've had a, a direct resident director who lives on site and then a land steward who does some of the outdoor work seasonally. And it has run that way as a nonprofit since 81, 82, when the founders founded it and put it into place. You know, there are flyers in the cabins that talk about being on council and they have these, they put out newsletters, paper newsletters twice a year that like tell things about the place and also give profiles of council members. So when we stayed, I read all of these and I was 
I was feeling devastated by the world. I was feeling like, what the fuck am I doing? Like working in this chocolate factory that we know is closing and we don't have any money and we're never gonna have any money. And I was like trying to figure out how to volunteer and like finding that hard as well. I'd like started writing letters to some some ladies in prison. I'd started doing a couple of different things. I, I, this is just to make it clear that I'm actually not much of a joiner otherwise. And so this council thing was there and I was like, hey, I think I want to do that. And I asked the resident director about it and ended up, you know, after a process, uh, you could sort of get interviewed and stuff coming on the council. And then soon after I joined the council, the current resident, you know, the resident director then resigned. We had, when we first visited, I had actually said to her, hey, have you ever had a family be resident directors? And she was like, uh, not that I know of, but maybe, who knows, you know? So there was this time then where the council was searching for someone. We were in the process of trying to close down the factory, which, you know, was a bigger deal at the time. It was sort of me trying to say, it's time, it's time, it's time. Lots of arguing, lots of devastating things for for my partner. Um, It's hard to give up chocolate. Well, you know, the funny thing was he'd given up eating chocolate long before that. He seemed to have developed some sort of allergy to it, and it actually made him, like, evilly angry when he ate it. You know, I mean, he still liked the taste of it, but when he tasted in the process of making it, he had to, like, spit like you do with wine. So the woman who was doing the job... I was finishing up this job in Springfield, which had been rough, again, in ways that don't have to do with the kids necessarily, right? But it was it was just a lot. It was a lot of hours. It was a lot of commuting. It was, it was sort of an intense job. She was still residing, but had gotten an apartment and was going to be moving off. They still hadn't hired someone. We had talked about it, but there was no way to apply for the job until we really did. You know, the decision was made to close the factory. We just couldn't have done it. I was trying to decide... If I what I was going to do for a teaching job, and we said, well, why don't we move up there for the summer just to be? There's supposed to be someone living here always. She would continue to do the job, but we would move up for the summer and see if we could handle it. It seemed like a bigger deal then. I mean, this is the thing that you know, normies, quote unquote, who would think it was a strange living situation. It doesn't feel like it. It is at all anymore, and it's not really as rustic as it sounds, quite honestly. But. Um, <laughs> Um, We don't have running water, so... Maybe it doesn't sound rustic to you. (laughs) It doesn't sound rustic to me, but I mean, at the time, it did enough, right? You know, I mean, yeah, Yeah. certainly I was like, let's try it. We have a water pump, so we carry a lot of water, right? Um, Rustic. And rustic, right? There's no no running water. There's no electricity, although we have a... We have a solar panel now that that the first year we didn't have an electric light, but now we have enough solar power for an electric light. So that's exciting. Um, that is exciting. That's great. <laughs> super exciting. I love electricity. <laughs> the electric, I mean, not like electric lights, not multiple. We have one light. We have like the kind you, like a plumber's light that hangs. It made such a huge deal in the winter, right? You had, uh, but, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, we were like kerosene lamps and candles, which, you know, when it gets dark at four is... Um... It's charming and everything, but every day... <laughs> right, right. Um, we have enough power for the computer. I mean, you know, there there had been already a setup that was a, a thing to charge um, from the solar panel and charge computers and phones and stuff. So mm-hmm. what else do we not have? We, ha- we have a refrigerator and a stove because they're propane. So and we you have, have a, a propane stove. refrigerator? How does that work? Yes. Um, with propane. (laughs) I don't actually know. What does the propane do to keep your food cold? (laughs) Um, well, I mean, it like, uh, you know what? I don't know. I'm, I'm really bad at mechanics. Colin would be like, that's ridiculous. This is, of course, this is what it does. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it's powered by the propane. So it has, it has, I think the same mechanisms basically, but they're powered by propane instead of electricity. All right. Let's hold up a second. Hold up a second. We're going really fast. As much as I'd like to talk about propane refrigerators, because I am (laughs) legit fascinated 
You can look them up. They've been I'm around gonna. for a while. Oh, I'm gonna. I don't know that I need to go over the, the logistics of the propane refrigerator <laughs> on the podcast, though. Probably not. No. As awesome as it sounds. I think the Amish use them. I'm definitely going to look it up because it sounds very interesting. And I think it's funny that you you say it's not that rustic because <laughs> everything you described by most people's standards is like straight up. Well, I guess it's not camping. It's glamping. Yes, it's definitely glamping. It's like glamping, which is OK. I love I, I, I like both <laughs> normal camping and glamping. I'm not afraid of a little bit of rusti- rusticity. But yeah, I like I am straight up way into electricity. So it would be hard for me, like deep, deep into electricity. That said, we've covered a lot of ground already, and I'm probably going to go back and try to focus a little bit on some of the, the bullet points. You were a woman who was doing restaurant work and you got into education. Do you do you yourself have specialized education? Did you did you stumble into restaurant work because you were like a nomad? Or did you stumble into restaurant work be, just because it was just something, a job? Like, tell me, tell me how that came about. Like, did you have a goal or did you just, do you just go with the flow? I started restaurant work in some of my first jobs. I I wasn't thinking career paths. That was not my 17, 18 through 22 year old necessarily focus, but I was a nanny right after high school. So I was doing that kid care stuff, but I had also decided at some point, I think by the time I graduated from high school, I decided I wanted to do education based on a conversation with a high school friend. She was a high achiever. She had ended up at MIT. She did actually much better in school. I always did perfectly fine in school, but um, didn't necessarily try very hard. But I was having a conversation with her about classes we were in and about teachers and the way the teachers led things, right? About the curriculum, but also about the class. And she was sort of rolling her eyes at me. You know, I figured based on where she was with her own education, I was like, well, don't you think about that, Jen? You know, don't you sit around and like critique how the teachers deliver stuff? Haven't you always done that? I had always done that in my memory. And I just assumed everyone else did too. Yeah, it's a fair, it's a fair assumption. Right. And she laughed at me and said, everybody doesn't do that. You know, like she thought about her classes, sure. And she maybe thought about individual teachers in terms of their personalities, but she never thought about it like that. I think I'm 17. We're like sitting on a concrete thing in the the river (laughs) and we're having this conversation and she says well maybe you should like do something with that because at this point in in this was sort of senior year and I had made a very loudly worded point so much so that I, I failed a class junior year that I didn't want to think about college right now and I was pissed off at everybody who was sort of like pressuring me to like go and do something and I kind of had a little light bulb that went huh interesting you know maybe I should I think it's interesting that you say that your friend who gave you this idea or this inspiration is an MIT person because you know, MIT is a super fancy school and it's hard as hell to get into it. And like all these other types of schools, Harvard, Yale, Ivy League, Northwestern, whatever, they're all super hard schools to get into. I think it's funny that that person says, oh, well, I don't think about these things. And it makes sense that they don't think about them because a lot of people who end up going to schools like that are very well suited to the way that the system works. Right. And right. And, and we end up talking a lot here about people who don't necessarily work well within the system. From my experience, a lot of people in that system, not everybody, but a lot of people that that do well and end up going to places like MIT and Harvard are very dismissive of people who don't excel in those types of environments. I think it's really cool that your friend was like, well, why don't you think about that? 
It sounds like your friend's awesome, is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, she is awesome. I haven't talked to her in a number of years. This you point, should call her I'm after still, this. I should call her. I mean, we're still in touch. I just don't end up yet. She's back in. She works for 3M now. But yes, I think I have credited her with that before, but I should again. Meanwhile, though, I graduate high school. I moved to California to be a nanny. I decide somewhere in California that... I want to, that I'm, I'm going to apply to colleges. The jobs I wanted and got was I was working in a diner for the, the breakfast lunch shift, a tiny diner called Mary's Cafe, where they served only toast and eggs and then hamburgers and knew all the local news before it happened. Um, like literally, like I remember there being a call that, that someone called to say that these people had been murdered out of town what? and they'd found the bodies before they called the police. They called it the was diner crazy. first. They called the diner first. So <laughs> I would definitely not want to know about their murders, but it sounds like a kind of place where I would love to eat. Yes. I don't think it's around anymore. I think Mary died of heart disease, but, um, but <laughs> too many hamburgers. Yes, exactly. But, um, it was a funny place and those were my years of sort of like doing things to my, on a dare myself. It wasn't really a suitable job for the person that I was in the nineties that, you know, the, I mean, it was, but in terms of, they didn't think it was, there was still, you know, I, I was kind of an arty kid and I was this, you know, had taken this time off and traveled and had been to California and this was a small town place. And I wasn't really from the small town, but I wanted to work there because I want to work in a diner in this place. And so I had gone in on multiple occasions and told them I wanted to work there. And they were kind of like, who are you? And they didn't know my people, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, finally they, they did give me a job. So it was a funny fit. And then I went, that was my first shift. And then I worked at the food co-op in town for my second shift. That was my entry into the food world, I guess. It allowed me to live what was a moderately exciting for a small town, Wisconsin, sort of double life. And yeah. um, someone's friend was renovating this house for something. And so I got to live in this house very inexpensively. I just had to move rooms every couple of weeks while they renovated a new room and did that in the town while my my high school friends were all busy in their their new colleges and starting their second year. So I applied to colleges and then left town, you know, picked up, packed up and moved in order to travel to the colleges that I applied to, which all happened to be on the East Coast. I'd applied to Bennington and to Marlboro. Just judging I, on what you've said so far, I'm going to I'm going to profile and say that you would fit in very well there. <laughs> Yes, I think I probably would have. <laughs> Where else? I, oh, Long Island University, I think, only because they had apparently like a very good study abroad program at the time. And nice. so my idea at that time That's was that I your just reason wanted for to going travel. there. Yeah. That is yeah. so awesome. Again, it fits in with yes. your profile. But yes. but in your early 20s, why wouldn't that be a good reason to go to a place? Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> That's how I became involved with the Netherlands. The first time I came here was on student exchange because I wanted to travel. And there was another student who had gone there a year before me, and she assured me that just speaking English wouldn't be a problem. So I immediately got in gear and started <laughs> making that happen. And it wasn't because I cared about the school or the program or anything. Right, I just wanted right. I just wanted a home base in Europe so I could visit all these different cities. It worked out. It all worked out. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, don't know. I, I wouldn't go that far. It's still working itself out. But as far as motivations are concerned, I don't I think that that's uh, it's great. And it's also, yeah, you seem to be fairly consistent. Yes, it's true. I sort of ended up deciding in the course of those travels and visiting my my group of friends that I needed friends more than I needed to start school in an unknown Indeed. place. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I I, I think I'm going to move to Madison to be with this 
friend instead, like move in with her and I can end up going to school in Madison. I can totally relate to that. I, I went to University of Vermont for a year after I graduated from high school because, you know, everyone's like, you got to go to school. And that was one of the places. And I had a friend who was going to another school in Burlington. So I, I went and I lived in the dorms and it was a nightmare. <laughs> it's like a breeding ground for depression and yeah. and alcoholism. After all that, I ended up deciding that I wanted to go to art school, but I needed time because I didn't have any money or anything. And what I ended up doing was moving in with Ed in Hadley okay. because all those guys were going to the University of Massachusetts. Anyway, I feel like I'm hearing a lot of parallels. I think that you're a little bit more extreme on the end of the the, the vagabondisms, <laughs> but the needs and the directions that you take, I, I feel like I, I can relate to a lot of them. I, I don't know if people ignore it or if they're not aware of it, but I, I feel like that's kind of what a lot of people get out of living in the dorms, you know, like going to live with friends or whatever. I always assume maybe a lot of them already knew people they went with or yeah. or they make those friends right away, which I can see would make it tolerable. But I, from the outside perspective, you know, from the perspective of the person who vagabonded in and stayed on people's floors in their dorms, it looked awful to me. On the other hand, I think I felt like I missed out on it for a period of time. You know, I think I felt a little sad about it for some years. But. You're supposed to feel bad about it. There are entire movies <laughs> dedicated to the, the experience and, yes, and yes. it's, it's a, they're trying to sell you this culture, but it's actually just a waste of time and money. <laughs> Of course, it's fun, but you can party with your friends anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a dorm. Yes. Yes. And I did still do that. Yes. I, I still managed to do that for a number of years, right? It seemed more fun out of the dorms because you weren't getting tickets for it. You know, the stories are richer outside of the dorms, I feel. <laughs> but yeah, whatever. So you're vagabonding around Wisconsin now? So I moved to Madison with this friend who's starting school there. When we moved there, she and I went there to find an apartment together. Um, and I also applied to a job at the food co-op there. Food co-ops are even now, but certainly then a scene and a culture in and of itself. And they this really was a long, are. Yeah. And it was great. It was really a lot of fun. And I'm meeting all kinds of old alternative people and new ones and becoming sort of part of different scenes. Yeah. There. And it was fun. It was really fun. When I first moved to Boston, there was this guy who used to go to the Star Market, which I don't know if yeah. that even yeah, exists yeah. anymore. I it does, yeah. Okay. I would just go to the Star Market because it was around the corner from my apartment. And this guy, over the years, I ended up just calling him activist guy. <laughs> my friend Ilana used to work with him at Coffee Connection, and evidently his name is Dan. She calls him Dan the Bagel Man. <laughs> anyway, he would actively like just approach people in the supermarket and tell and like look at go through their carts and say, Oh, you could go and go over to the harvest and, and get this for blah 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 in bulk. <laughs> he would like go and recruit people at the supermarket. <laughs> and and yes. it's like so you saying that this is like a culture, it, it's straight like it is straight up zealots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, maybe less so now. You know, I, mean, I think with the evolution of Whole Foods, things things shifted into some of that stuff being more normalized. But um, I, I, I don't know. Is $6 for a tiny bunch of grapes normal? <laughs> but, you know, one thing that, that tended to exist in those years and, and still, uh, you know, in food co-ops, it's sort of activism around food as well, right? So yeah. Some knowledge around that and, and um, people who are more interested in thinking about food in those ways, as well as, you know, obviously then whole other cultures, right? So there was the the deadhead guy who just like, the, who's the <laughs> produce guy, Mike, who plays the dead 24 hours a day when he's there. And so awesome. you come in. I was only ever peripheral to music scenes. Um, 
dated the folks and, you know, was hung out on the edges, but, um, those people were there, right. Because those kind of a job like that is one you can have. And so. be in a band, go on tour exactly, sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then also I think, you know, the piece of learning is sort of about the socialist piece of that culture. You know, I mean, it was still a food co-op in which everyone voted on things and you had, you know, monthly meetings where everyone came to the meetings and talked about everything and voted on things. So that piece of the politics of running things differently. Fast forward, I'm in Minneapolis and um, working for Whole Foods because at that point, then I have this whole history of food service and um, got a job working in specialty. So right, chocolate, coffee, cheese. Nice, nice. And worked at that Whole Foods for years because it in those years, there were a lot of benefits to working there. I mean, actually, their, their, their benefits were pretty good. And I was learning stuff and I could still have that job. And at that point, I was in school and then doing my student teaching. The woman I worked for in my department, you know, the head of the department was super knowledgeable about food. I've been in restaurant work. I've been in other quote unquote fine food that was still interesting to me at that point in time. Felt like I was learning stuff and it was a reasonable job to have. It was always shitty as well. I mean, even though it had those benefits, it was shitty to work for because it was still super corporate. You know, I mean, it it Mm -hmm. always was. Even before Amazon, they were probably shutting down a lot of places like these these co-ops. Oh, yeah, yeah. These socialist breeding grounds. Right. And and they did this whole thing where, you know, it was all about, like, team, the team, which is... We're a family here. Yeah, we're a family here. <laughs> but simultaneously, like, and, and then lots of, like, shady things. I ended up in, like, arguments with the, the store manager because he was such a schmuck. And I met, met, met my partner there. I actually helped hire him. Um, my boss was um, not great with people, and she was having a string of bad luck with um, her hires who kept sort of like, she's just being awful, you know. She basically came to us and said, can you please, like, come and help me interview people? Because I don't know what's wrong with me. I keep, you know, picking. The wrong ones. <laughs> the wrong ones. Um, so we all became part of her hiring team, which was probably pretty intimidating for, like, you know, people coming into these cheese department job cheese ladies are coming (laughs) the cheese ladies are coming (laughs) and sat and interviewed these people so we interviewed (laughs) my partner and um and did tell her to hire him and then what do you know about cheese (laughs) and usually nothing you know but uh what's your favorite cheese some dumb dumb question that's what's your favorite cheese uh you know it's I don't eat much cheese anymore. I did for many years and I loved it, loved it. And I still do eat some, but my kid has become adamantly vegan and recently uh, sugar-free because she's a little what? militant. And um, how, old is, how old is this child? She's nine. Wow. And uh, she's activized, activated. Uh, yeah, yeah. Already nine. Yeah, my, oh, yeah. my. I know. Um, The vegan is for the animals because she's obsessed with, you know, anyway, but I I understand. I I mean, it's a legit, it's a legit thing. I just can't, I just, there's no way I'm going to promote that in my house. And I always thought that myself, I was like, go ahead, go ahead, Sabine, but I'm not like, I love cheese. I'm still eating it. But the thing is slowly. And then my partner has, has, he's not completely vegan, but he's kind of stopped most things as well. And so as they stopped eating it, it sort of became like, well, I'm also eating it less because if yeah. we're cooking together, then, you know, and so I right. find that I'm I'm eating very little anymore. Okay. There's a lot going on here. A lot of twists and a lot of turns. This podcast is about careers, but it's also about pivots. It's also about, I don't like to use the word your journey because it sounds very <laughs> touchy-feely, but it does sound like there's a bit of a journey here. The thing that I've noticed thus far 
I'm going to use the word vagabond again. You have sort of a vagabond lifestyle, and I don't that I'm not meaning that in in any sort of a derogatory way. Oh no, no, it's I'm just not that you are. It seems like you are on some or were are maybe you still are on some <laughs> sort of a a journey, a mission. I'll say a mission because I don't like the word journey. Uh, you're on a mission to find a place where you fit in, where, where whether it's Mary's Diner, <laughs> where you kind of force your way in. Or you go on this crazy retreat because your in-laws can be a little bit overbearing at times. And then you end up finding a way to live and work there. You weren't looking for it. You found it. You you were moving through space and time and then you found it. You were moving through space and time and you found Mary's Diner. You pick up skills and, and friends and experiences along the way like everybody else. But instead of doing it via, I started at this company and then applied at this company and applied at this company, you're just kind of yes. vagabonding it. I think that is a fair cast of, of my life journey. Yes. I think that that prospect is terrifying for a lot of people, like not knowing. Yes. I have no idea what's going to happen, so I'm not going to do it. And I'm just going to stay at this job that I hate. Because it's guaranteed money or health or insurance, whatever. whatever. Yeah, I, I'm just going to come straight off the bat and say that I think that that makes you a success because this is what one could consider an alternative lifestyle, and you are making it work. And yeah, you talk about some things that might be considered a, a pitfalls, or I'm going to use the word failure, but not it, not in the catastrophic sense. Like you said that at a time you had to move back in with your parents. Personally, if I had to move back in with my parents, I would feel like that was a pretty major failure. But you bounce back, you come back and you do the you do the thing. You find a way to get out of it. Dealing with with setbacks like these is it's part of everyone's trajectory. I would say that yours sounds like a success story even though, you know, your business, the chocolate business did not fare as well as it could have. I, I, which I would like to hear more about, by the way, because first of all, I love cho- chocolate. I love people who make artisanal products. <laughs> Yet I also understand how it may be nearly impossible to make that business work in today's marketplace or even the marketplace of 10 years ago or whenever it happened. Right. So you're working with this dude at the food museum. <laughs> Is he chocolating then? Um, are, are you guys planning on chocolating? Like, no. Colin, when he starts, so Colin's my partner now, was young and the chocolate thing for him came about because he was also like learning about food and experimenting with stuff. And that boss we had was teaching him how to make chocolate truffles. Nice. And he and a friend were like thinking they were going to sell them. And then he got interested in making the chocolate and like learning about cacao. And and one thing led to another. By the time he and I are hanging out other than just working together. He was like making chocolate in his basement, has like bought some little machines and stuff and is like doing this thing in his basement and is literally like, you know, inviting the ladies over to help him winnow chocolate. Hey ladies. <laughs> it's a good pickup line. Do you want to come and time. smell my basement? <laughs> it's probably the best smelling basement in the world though, for real. He and his friend actually start this business. It's just sort of snowballed, right? So he they start they make this first sort of batch of chocolate and then um, it kind of, it got this local press. There was a food writer in Minnesota who also like wrote for gourmet and stuff. And she was actually a pretty good food writer. And the food scene in Minneapolis was very into its local food and they pick it up as a story and print it. And it was like right before the holidays. Then he sold out the batch that he'd made that, that first. And so ends up needing to like buy a machine and rent a space, um, because the basement isn't big enough. And sort of just one thing led to another. So he's sort of starting that while working at Whole Foods. I, meanwhile, was 
student teaching and then moving into my first year as like an actual teacher, which was you know just sort of, I'm doing that. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. And living in, in an apartment. In, in a normal public school or in a special school or? Uh, nope. Normal public school. So the program I went to was um, focused on quote unquote urban education, right? Um, Cause it was in <laughs> St. Paul. I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What, um, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? It means you don't just have white kids. Um, it was in fact my interest years in, there's still like, what is the vocabulary layer? That doesn't sound um, diminishing, Yeah. but I liked those schools. So, I mean, I did my student teaching because of that and because of where it was in downtown St. Paul and for St. Paul schools. Um, and it was great. I liked the teachers I worked with. I, I felt like I learned a lot. So I moved from the student teaching and got a job in that district in St. Paul. And then the second year I got a job at, a, at another school in the district, but um, as a sixth grade position, I had thought I wanted to do younger kids during my student teaching and stuff. And I, I found myself really, really liking the sixth graders. I also came into a team of teachers. There were three sixth grade classrooms and it was paying our bills. So in the meantime, Colin is starting the factory. He's like getting more press and, and winning some chocolate awards. And, um, how many chocolate awards are there? More than you'd think. I don't, I mean, I don't, it's not like I know the names of them or anything. I don't, and mm-hmm. like all awards things, you have to enter stuff, right? So you have to like, you have to pay, <laughs> pay to enter, which he, I think, did in the early years. And then he stopped doing because we didn't have any money. And so then people would like sponsor him and enter mm-hmm. him. And I mean, then, it was a then weird you, little Then you can world. put award winning chocolate on your wrapper. Exactly. Exactly. Which mattered again in the early years and then less so as time. This on, one but. won the Augustus Gloop Award. <laughs> Um, That's very prestigious. Yes. It was fun in those years because we got to meet a bunch of people. We got to go to, you know, awards and food shows in other places, right? So there would be like a trip once a year to New York and once a year to San Francisco for That's these pretty awesome. food things. Uh-huh. The Good Food Awards came about. It mattered so much in those years. So all these like, you know, famous food people of a certain yeah. kind of food in that time. And, and you got to meet people and like go and taste food that was cool but, um, yeah who could argue with that and it felt sort of like this mini celebrity thing to be peripheral to although it was also i mean it was very male dominated in those early years and i, I was imagine. definitely like the girlfriend hanging on and oh, traveling. We, I, mean, I really t- like chocolate yeah exactly yeah I, i'm a teacher um <laughs> this is so great but you must have been a, a true believer if you were basically funding a good portion of this. Were, were you merely being supportive or were you like a really a true believer in the the chocolate, the chocolate a mission? A true believer. Um, have I ever been a true believer in much of anything? I mean, so, you know, that that food world stuff, there were things about it that felt like they mattered a lot. Right. Like and yeah. both in terms of like environmentally mm-hmm. they felt like they mattered and also like aesthetically um they felt like they mattered it felt sometimes like people were doing something important or was it just marketing and and of course a lot of it was marketing um and we tried to stay out of the parts of that we didn't believe in and Colin especially tried to stay out of the parts he didn't believe in which is of course part of the reason why it financially was never successful you know i mean he had these very high standards for what he wanted it to taste like how he wanted it to be made but also um, sourcing the the material isn't and sourcing that, the material exactly that's a huge thing with chocolate right the fair trade yep. and that was he made we made single origin two ingredient chocolate and that was it was very purist oh my god right? i totally so, want to try this you might have tried it i mean it was around for years yeah 
what year was this? He started it in 2011. I was already that, here, so no. there's a pro- there's a very small chance that I had it. Um, we sold it in some European. It's it was called what was Rogue. it called? Rogue. Rogue? Mm-hmm. I may have because I used to go to uh, some kind of co-opty grocery store for lunch every day, and I did try basically all the different chocolates on their on yeah. their thing. So I could have, but I I don't remember the name. It was very high end. We sold mostly to chocolate shops, which yeah. there are fewer of now, but for a period of time were sort of a thing. And so it sold for you know between. Twelve and twenty dollars a bar. It was. I did not pay that much for any chocolate. So <laughs> maybe someone gave it to you once. I don't know. Yeah. But. I I have to say that generally that that kind of thing puts me off. But I yeah. definitely want to try the chocolate that costs twenty dollars bar. <laughs> <laughs> it must be amazing. <laughs> and even with that, you know, we were not we were not paying our costs. You know, the thing of it is, in order, Jesus. it really actually does cost a lot to manufacture things right so like manufacturing yeah you would have to make like massive massive batches quantities yeah and we we didn't because we couldn't um and because the the ingredients he were buying you know the the beans he was buying and that he was sourcing were also very expensive and so really you know at some point that we had decided he had decided the direction to go was just to make very small very expensive batches right and it it works in that we did always sell all the chocolate. I mean, with the exception of the first very early years, he he sold everything he made, but we just still couldn't couldn't do it. I don't know. I mean, could someone have done it? Probably, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I it, it. I think you just need to expand at that point. And if you're if you can't or are unwilling to or unable to or just don't know how to expand, then I, I, I yeah, it's like a threshold. You need to cross the right. threshold or not exactly. cross it. And, and and at this point, I think in the world, I mean, this is to me is true for chocolate, it's true for manufacturing of things, and it's also sort of true for all kinds of other systems, right, including education. I mean, none of it's designed for anybody to be successful. There's not really a way to have a business that is one that you don't want to make money in. You know, it's no longer possible to have just like a, a business that sustains your life and and pays for your own bills because you can't you can't go that way. You can either figure out a way to expand and sell out enough of your values and get in pull in enough money that then you're making tons of money and, and balancing the debt with your money. People don't have that anymore. There's no such thing it as is, the mom and pop store or the mom and pop business. Anymore. It has become it increasingly exist. more difficult. Anyway, that was, uh, I would imagine it was, was kind that. of heartbreaking, right? It was definitely heartbreaking for Colin yeah. and, and understandably so. And, and I think continues to be so, but although I was invested in various ways and with my life I wasn't you know it wasn't my thing it right. never been my thing so you know in terms of success and visions of success my vision of success didn't necessarily include financial success or awards or any of the rest of it although I can say that and I also like realized that times in my life when I've been without approval in some job or been with you know in it, it stuck increasingly as as one is um for us and we don't we don't we'll not have the money to buy a house when this situation ends and it's no longer possible to rent anything. So there's a way in which even if you don't believe in those kinds of success, it's still, still very much, yes, feels like a failure if you are unable to get a place to live. It Um, hurts, right? It hurts. I I try to balance. Let me, how do I say this nicely and fluidly for the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I try to have a job where I can earn some money and not hate myself every single day while also having some sort of artistic endeavors on the side. And it really is a compromise on both sides. So the the artistic endeavors suffer and the earning of money suffers. And it's fine. 
what I'm trying to say is that it's nice to have a home. Is is your current situation a sustainable one? I mean, our current situation is sustainable and is and feels sort of magically good. But that's, it's that's not. Great. It is great. It is great, and I feel I feel very grateful for it. But it will have an end. We are still employees. But does it have to end? At some point, probably. I don't. You know. I mean, it, it's it's an interesting question. But um, because of the way the place runs and because of what it is, one imagines that at some point it does have to end. Because again, we're employees. You know, the the longest another resident director here was here was. I think seven or eight years. So that's but, a long time. Although but you're not just employees. Now. True. I mean, the way you found the job and the way the job w- was given to you, you've already described it being this sort of communal decision. So unless the community decides that you guys are worthless, you should be okay, right? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't keep me up at night. Um, I, the other thing that is a part of what I think about these days is that the community that is this council is shrinking and has been, it's had a hard time, maybe always, but certainly in the years since I've been on the council, um, finding new council members and retaining them. And we've just lost a few more. So we're actually um, trying to re-envision what council might look like and how that we might bring on new council members which is a whole strange, interesting process in itself to try to change a structure from within when not everyone necessarily agrees it needs to be changed. Yeah. I don't know, it's, you know, microcosm of the world, of course, but um, like the people who are the council people, technically it's a three-year term for them. Uh, oh, really? Who decides that? The bylaws. I mean, people have re-up. So for instance, right now there's a person who's been on for like, I don't know, eight years or something, right? Because they, they can re-up, but mostly they don't. And in and in recent years, some of them have not even stayed for the full three years. Okay. But is the is the place sustainable? Another interesting question. I mean, it should be as long as, you know, minus catastrophes, because it has been since the late 70s, early 80s in this format. And it's a nonprofit and you don't, we don't have to make a lot of money, right? Like, so this is like, this is the exception to that piece that says you don't actually have to make a profit because, right. but, <laughs> because. But you but. also described before how a lot of the people were older people coming out to yes. do dance workshops or whatever. Do you have young people coming there? We do. And that has been a focus of Colin and I trying to get people to come. Uh, so um, That's very and, smart. <laughs> yes. Um, I, and I mean, frankly, during the pandemic, we've had higher numbers of retreatants than than had been for a number of years before that. Because, I've never heard that word before, by the way. Retreatants. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why ever not? Isn't that a common? I word? like it. <laughs> we try not to call them customers or, you know, various clients. <laughs> clients, exactly. Retreatants. You know what I, I would that's... call them if I were there? My favorite my favorite Dutch word is bazookers. <laughs> what does that mean? Visitors. Oh. Uh-huh. But it's a I crazy like word, right? Bazookers. You should make a note I'm of that. Writing and, it down. and start yeah. calling your retreatants bazookers. <laughs> bazookers. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I mean, as long as you can manage to keep enough people coming and you can manage to bring in enough money for the regular maintenance, then theoretically, it's all fine. Do you guys do maintenance there? What what do you, what, do, what do you actually do there? We do some of the maintenance. There's this hired person who's the quote unquote land steward, but he was new this at the same time we were. This guy does like tree work. So he'll, you know, we have to supply the wood for the cabins for the year, yeah. um, either by buying it and then 
bringing it out to the cabins and stacking it or by cutting things on the property. There's maintenance of the buildings and the road and the, you know, like anybody's house, except then with some cabins and stuff too. Right. right okay. And without electricity. I don't know. And the, the lodge is a space that, you know, is only open seasonally. So there's opening and closing the lodge. And then there's the daily prep and clean the cabins and get them ready for retreatants and, and then do orientations with people and clean after they leave, that kind of thing. How does homeschooling fit into all of this? <laughs> I mean, homeschooling was COVID related, mostly. We were going to send her back this year. She went at the end of last year. She'd been online. I was online teaching. She was online schooling like everyone else. And then we didn't send her back until after vaccines last year. So she went for the last couple of months of school. And we were going to send her back this school year. And then Colin felt freaked out by the numbers and sort of diminishing safety protocols. But we had thought we'd send her back at various points. Like, okay, we'll send her back then in December. And then every time we thought we were going to send her back, the numbers would shoot up or they lift mask mandates. And she also was really enjoying being homeschooled because it meant that she didn't have to do things at certain times, which she liked not being told what to do all the Uh, time. Yeah, right. (laughs) She is a young activist. (laughs) Right, right. She did design her website and start a business. She has a website. That's so great. Yeah, yeah. You have to send me the link. I'll send you the link. How long have you been homeschooling? Just this year. And, One year. And, yeah. Are you doing it as part of a network of other people? Like, what are your resources? Do you consult with other people about it? No network. I had to pull together a homeschooling plan in advance of the year by the state requirements, right? I mean, I used teaching resources, right? I used my own knowledge right, and that of, right. that of teaching friends and pulled together something that, frankly, she didn't really end up following. But, you know, I mean, kind of she did, right? It was. It hey, was, it's a starting point. Yeah, it was good for my thought process and thinking it out. Sure. But meanwhile, I was gone every day at the school, which was weird, right? Teaching. So she's with her dad and they did or did not do those things. <laughs> okay. Know? I mean, I would check in with her at the end of the day and would go over things. And the delivery of things that he did... I it was like not super enforced, right? So I would like make her a checklist in the morning and we would go over what the checklist was at the end of the day. And I think he would like remind her, oh, did you do this thing? But it was pretty free form. I'm not saying I didn't care, like I cared and I wanted her to be doing certain things, but, and I couldn't have done it with a different kid. Her reading is fine and is strong and she likes to read. So she was reading all the time. So that kind of made me feel like for a third grader, well, that's really the most important thing, you know? Meanwhile, she's very self-motivated about things that she cares about. So she's designing her business and her website and, you know, she's doing this other stuff. So I'm not really academically worried about that per se. Not that I am, frankly, ever super academically worried about kids. I mean, that's another whole thing, right? Like, yeah, it is. Learning loss post-COVID and like the whole, yeah. Right. That's a whole nother conversation. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Math. I, I, I was using some math programs. She did some online math. Then she started doing some other like sort of worksheety stuff. So I had a place to direct her. I'm going to like do some math with her this summer. My partner's perfectly capable of doing those things. It's not like he doesn't know, but it was more of a struggle between the two of them. She took online cello lessons. From Yo-Yo Ma. Actually play, I mean, kind of, right? Like a <laughs> woman who was like in an orchestra in Eastern Europe. And so she did these online cello lessons with her. And nice. she was doing that. And she was doing gymnastics once a week with this person who has a home gym, like yeah. a 15 year old kid. So, you know, I felt like the, the, the training piece of being motivated to do things that are hard and frustrating was like the most important thing she gets out of the year. I think it's funny that you talk about your your man friend's approach to homeschooling <laughs> as a, well, you know, he's not a teacher. And right. 
you are actually qualified to teach people things. You know, your approach is, you know, I have a plan. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to do the thing. And he's like the opposite end of the spectrum. That's one of the things that I think about when I, when people tell me that they're going to homeschool, where in the spectrum are most of these people like so because I I, and and when my conversation with Shane this guy who he and his wife are considering homeschooling and I brought up my concern that I I just don't feel like most people should be teaching anybody anything and and we also discussed that even you know you know super intelligent people it's you have to want to teach kids things yes it's not that I don't know anything about elementary school curriculum or I can't handle it, but I certainly don't think I'm the guy to be teaching the kids because of patience. <laughs> and, you know, my mind would just be somewhere else most of the time. I'd be like, I got to work on my own thing, which is why teachers are so great because they do it and you don't have to think about it. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just curious how 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 your experience is going. Like, do, it sounds to me like the kid's in good hands. He's got. I think she is. I mean, it's certainly the thing that the thing that people react to you most, I don't know if you found this in talking to people about homeschooling, they kind of think you're damaging your kid, not academically, but socially. Like we've really uh, internalized this idea that the only way kids are okay is if they spend most of their time around other kids. And it's an interesting idea. I don't think there's nothing to it. Like I do think it's important. There is something Um, to it. But it's strange how much even a lot of people I know who don't necessarily believe, you know, that our current education system is is doing all the things it should or that kids need all of that. They still were very concerned. And I would say this is pretty much everyone, everyone in our lives, mm-hmm. um, that she doesn't have enough time with other kids. I don't think that it's really a problem, but I can definitely say uh, maybe not on the, the elementary or middle school or high school level. I don't know how it affects those people, but I can tell you kids start school at four here, which I think is it's on the early side. And you can really tell a difference in maturity with a lot of the kids because, you know, some people develop social skills and different things faster than others. And four is a really right. weird time to be yeah. pulled away from your parents and thrown yeah. into school, I think. But our kids went to daycare since they were babies and they were around other babies and they were around some kids that were older. And I think that that really helped them because when we left, our kids were fine, but you could see some kids totally freaking out when their parents were leaving. So <laughs> like, there's definitely something to it, but like, yeah. is it a problem? No, I don't, I don't think it's a problem. It's just yeah, that that's part of development. It's different. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I do want her to be around other kids. I mean, this is this is sort of the, the going forward piece. I think she would be fine in terms of her learning, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the other thing she did, of course, was she spent huge quantities of time outside because we live in the woods and she likes being outside. That's and awesome. So she, you know, she's part of Harvard Children's Study. This has been an ongoing study for a number of years that they just sign up preschool kids and it's it's mostly tracking online time but also sort of like other things related both to academics and social stuff. So you like fill out a survey every couple of months and they do an interview once a year. Anyway, there's this survey that comes out that asks them how much, how many minutes they spend of it every day doing various things, right? right? That are mostly semi-academic related or, you know, they're like about screen time and they're about like reading time and they're about outside time and blah, blah, blah. And when we go to fill it out, it won't, let her put in the number of minutes that she actually spends because it's too much. It's too much. The reading, the reading and the outside time are go over there. Like that's not, that's too many minutes. That's impossible. You must be wrong. It's funny. That is awesome. They keep needing to tell them it's a glitch in their system. No, she really does spend three hours outside every day. I swear. But when does she use the Nintendo switch? (laughs) 
I'm guessing that you guys don't have one of those. We don't. No, I don't think. In fact, I think she has maybe twice in her life played a video game with um like her on. But does she like it? Yeah, I think she liked it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty awesome. I we don't have one of those here. I don't know. I feel a little bit bad because I actually don't think video games are are necessarily a bad thing. No, no, I don't either. I mean, it's certainly better than like the time they spend on YouTube these days. I mean, that's the oh, like the man. kids that I that that seems much much worse for their development. <laughs> I'm a little freaked out because I looked at what my kid was looking at the other day and she she's just shopping for Legos, <laughs> which is cool. I mean, it's cool that it's Legos, but she already knows right. where to go. She knows where the stores. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she knows yeah. she knows the websites for the stores and stuff. And there's like pages, like 100 pages oh, yeah. of different Lego kits. <laughs> and I was I was a little freaked out. <laughs> I remember Sabine when she was little and had like the grandparents' iPad being into unwrapping videos. <laughs> you know, oh, the, like, and why we were do like, people do that? <laughs> but she and like grandparents would sort of like sneak watch them with her because we'd be like, get off of that. Yeah, it's <laughs> awful. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. How, but how, how is your homeschooling experience going? Are you into it? Are you going to keep doing it? So for us, the primary motivator continues to be the COVID thing. Yeah. Feel I don't know how it is there i mean i have sort of a sense of how it is everywhere but only a little like here like everyone has decided it doesn't exist and doesn't matter that's how it feels right now here too what's making all of us feel like we're crazy yeah and i don't know what to do i have you're um, you're still stressed out about it yeah and like both for my myself and for her and so we're sort of at a point and i don't know how this decision is going to get made or when it's going to get made that i'm not sure that i'm going back next year either because really I felt sort of magically safe. I mean, not, I didn't feel completely safe, but this year, because it's a small school, they actually did do air quality things. That's good. And my tiny sixth grade class, um, everyone was masking in up to the end, even once it became a choice. Um, For whatever reasons, these sixth graders respected us. But I mean, they weren't masking everywhere. It's not like they were kids who were also masking in other indoor places. They, they were not necessarily, but they were in the classroom and, and I could take them outside a bunch. Um, and we had these like kept our windows open like all year. And I've gotten to do all kinds of like brainstorming and thinking about things because I like this teacher that I work with a lot. In some ways it feels sort of like being in school. Like it's like all the things you want when you're teaching a chance to do, but you don't have the time to do to think about. So I feel a fair amount of distress at the idea of this community that I've built and I've been a part of sort of feels like it's going away again because of our feelings around trying to still stay safe and everyone else giving up the ghost. Those kids masked again because my co-teacher and I were vocal about our feelings about it. We weren't like, you have to stay masked. We never did, you know, because you can't Mm -hmm. politically do those things. But we sort of told them, and they're sixth graders, so they can handle it. We get to talk about a lot of things with them. And um, and they knew she had a baby, so I imagine that was part of it. Sure, that's um, that's pretty big. But like no one else in the building, had like most of the other kids and most of the other staff is no longer masked even even when like we had this you know another huge surge a month ago Mm -hmm. so they won't be next year um we also had testing all of it's going away there we we had testing too then it stopped it feels weird weird. but and also because it's summer now everybody's like oh it's summer i think we're gonna go outside so in in a way it's good because everybody's outside and Whatever, maybe the 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 ozone and UV light are good to uh, purify everything. But I mean, the thing still exists. Yeah. 
I don't know what will happen next year. I hope you decide to go back. It sounds to me like your your place is pretty well outfitted. If they've already re- revamped the HVAC system and you've got outdoor spaces you can go to and people are willing to wear masks in the classroom, I would say oh, just try to hold on to it. Like you don't want to. You... Well, I don't. They won't be wearing masks next year. I mean, that's that's sort of my. That was one of the reasons I stayed, and yeah. I, I know that they will not next year. That's kind of the. You know, well, what I mean, about I, in the yes. fall when the numbers go crazy through the roof? You know, they're gonna exactly, exactly, <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, I don't think they're going to wear masks still because I just don't think. Um, but sort of yeah. you know, socio politically, it's been become untenable for people. They just start sure. like. I mean, it's not nobody wearing masks, but it's it's less and less every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and the other thing, of course, it makes me do is then every time they're sort of this thing, right? Where you're like, the world is ending. I mean, for many years, I wanted to start my own school. That was part of why I like did that charter school startup thing. But like, I also have recognized at some point um, that I'm now, I'm now officially too old for that. Why? Um, Why why are you too old for it? Because I don't have, I know what it takes. Like I know the amount of time it yeah. takes to start a school and the amount of like daily hours of time. And you don't I have to don't do it by yourself. Have that. Well, I'd be great if I could find some 20 somethings who have the energy and the will to do the other piece, of course, is you can't start a school without being part of gross money grubbing political yeah, bullshitting yeah, sure. crap, sure. you know, like anything else. Yeah, um, there the compromises. Not, there are compromises everywhere. I don't know if it's possible or not. It doesn't seem impossible. I'm just I'm not sure if it's possible in an American public school setting anymore. Right. Um, on the other hand, you know, our structures and our institutions are balancing on the edge of uh, disillusionment, right? So I, yes. you know, I mean, there, there seems to be uh, a space for something that would come outside of that. I'm just not sure how. And I was like, I believe in public schools and the requirements of what it is to be a public school now. I don't know. I just don't know. But on the other hand, I still continue to feel like even in this sort of best case scenario school where our kids at this school have really a ton of flex within the curriculum and standards and they're, it's a small and you have two teachers per classroom and um, you have all this sort of one-on-one support and freedom, even with that, like it still feels sort of wrong, especially the middle school. Middle schools are crap. They're just absolute crap. And it makes me really mad. And I really like kids that age. I think that they are super underserved and discounted. And I would like to make something better for them. Why Why that age specifically? There's been a lot of focus since the 60s and 70s and, and in various waves around like making sure that playtime was still a part of it, right? Okay. And, it, like, yeah, 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 and yeah. this sort of whole child approach has even in sort of the most sort of strict public schools, you still have this sense of them early childhood as like needing that kind of yeah, whole sure. child approach, right? Once you on the other end towards high school, you lose a bunch of kids first off. You like weed them out in middle school. I mean, they may still technically be there in school, but like essentially they're they're not, right? So so you've written off a bunch of them. And so who you have left in high school are kids who are motivated in one way, shape or form. So either they're motivated to go towards tech school stuff or they're motivated to go towards college stuff. And, and either way, their motivation is to get the hell out of high school. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you tend to have high school teachers who care a lot about their subjects, right? In the way of, like college teachers, right? So yep. even though the design of those things may still not be great, it works because the kids who are still left want to get through it. That's sort of my my sense. And you also have a bunch more like there's the, even though I kind of hate the work focus of that schooling, I think that has allowed some other ideas to come into high school. So, you know, so there are different programs in high school that work 
not sort of in the traditional classroom way, right? There's access to that even in public schools. Meanwhile, for the middle school range, you know, so from the sort of like 12 through 15, 16, people have just decided for a number of years that they're just mini high schoolers and they're not. And so they keep doing things that are versions of mini high schools and like switching them around with like dumbass, like we're going to create teams and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then they get mad at the kids for acting like... Like kids? Like kids and acting like their age. Exactly. They really just end up treating them like prisoners. Like I think they do. They just sort of end up you're either a good kid and so you're sitting in your classes yeah, doing right, your right. schoolwork. That's in quotes. <laughs> which like they shouldn't be doing. Like like developmentally they shouldn't be doing. They should be up and moving around as certainly as much as they were in elementary school and probably more. They should be having like exposure to all kinds of different social situations and like working in groups and teams of people and working in the world. And instead you just make them go sort of insular and like get weird and watch youtube videos and a lot of youtube videos (laughs) smoke in the bathroom or jewels in the bathroom and everyone who works in middle schools like a lot of people who work in middle schools like middle schoolers but no one seems to be able to shift anything for what the design structure is right and then they're still sort of like baffled that it's not working yeah what was i reading recently something about how students children they get they start to get passionate about stuff in around you know, around 11, 12 years old. And that's when, that's when that stuff needs to be encouraged, not stifled saying, oh, but you need to get ready for this standardized test. You need to sit here and, and not move your feet around behind the desk and you're causing trouble. You're disrupting the class. We just need a little bit more variety in education is what I'm trying to say. Well, absolutely. (laughs) And I I think most middle schoolers need not classrooms. They need to be up and moving around. They need to have those passions fostered. They don't need to sit through three different classes or six different classes of different subject matter. Like it's not, it works for none of them, you know, like the only kids it works for sort of are kids who are like anal and, and pleasers, which yeah, like, or, or like, was, or the kids know. or the kids who are going to go to MIT or Harvard right. or whatever, right. who are just right. like, whatever system you drop them into, they're like, I am assertive, assertive, Robotron, Educatotron. <laughs> I will. Yeah. Like they're just going to do it anyway. Cause that's what their aptitude is. Right. They're going to succeed in that system. They're going to succeed in, but you know, imagine what they would do in another system where they were actually exposed to some real stuff. Right. And got to develop those other things. And yeah. and the other thing that they're mostly interested other than like those new passions and exploring the world is each other. And like, we just don't, instead, we just sort of stifle that. Like we make it like, you're not supposed to be talking to each other. You're supposed to be, you know, the friends keep, I mean, and parents all over say so like your friends shouldn't be part of school really, right? Like you do stop, stop goofing off with your friends at school, like do your schoolwork at school. And like, that's all they care about. So you might as well make it part of what the design of the system is. You know, you make it so they're working in social groups together and like give them actual instruction in how to do that. So they don't turn out to be asshole adults who still don't know how to deal with conflict, you know? Yeah, no, I play popularity games. I mean, like make that a thing for real. I, I, it's it's hard. I know I know it's hard. I I can sit here and talk about it all day, but I know that it's programmed into me. So the, <laughs> I'm pushing the pressure onto my kids as well. Even though I have this artsy background with with all these like ideas about educational reform, I still tell my kid, "Oh, you got to do better on the test or whatever." Right. And, right, right, and, right. and it's like it's uh and and it makes me. I'm not going to say it makes me hate myself, but uh, I sometimes I hate the things that I, I say and I don't even think about it. They just come out of my mouth. And then I try to have a real conversation with her. Yeah. And anyway, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs>
It's hard. It is hard. Well, I, you know, I think we all feel trapped by it, right? Because yes. it's sort of the sense yes. that we have as parents that if they don't do okay in middle school, well, they won't do okay in high school, which frankly is true, right? I mean, which is know, probably so, true. And and then they have to do okay in high school because you need them to, even those of us who believe in educational reform, you're like, but 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 you have to. I mean, you, you need to get to college because then you get to do the things you want to do. Right. Which, like, why? Why are we teaching our children this? This is Ugh. crazy. I know. It's nuts. It drives me crazy. And the fact that, that I am propagating the system drives me even more crazy. I propagate so many systems. It's terrible. <laughs> well, we all do, right? I mean, that's well, the, but like... you, I don't know. You live on this crazy place with, without electricity. So maybe some, some of us more than others, I'll just say. <laughs> I, I, well, I find it very frustrating that even at the point that I've decided that I ultimately don't believe in most of those systems, it still feels impossible to not propagate them. You know, right. like I... I think we should we should stop soon, but I don't want to end on a note of hopelessness. <laughs> tell me, um, so, tell me something good about education. Something good about education. I mean, there's there there you is can. a ton that's good about education. No, it's not true. I can. I mean, you know, I mean, the thing that I'm currently sort of trying to figure out whether I continue in this job next year or another one is like, I mean, there is like, like I was trying to say to myself. So, what are the things that I really love about? being with the kids. Like, is it, you know, is there a thing I love to teach? Well, not so much, you know, like there are people who love teaching reading, right. And they're right. like the, the whole, and while I appreciate those things and I love the whole sort of like, I don't know, Colin and I always joke, there was some like awful video ad for years. That was this person who was supposedly a tutor. And she was like, you know, the whole, when the light bulb goes off, so I just, oh. <laughs> a squared times B squared. <laughs> I love that moment when the light bulb goes off. Sure, whatever. Of course, that's that's cool. But I really like being in groups of kids and watching them and like helping them learn together about each other, about the world. And although I don't necessarily believe in huge aspects of what is our current education structure that says they go to school for six and a half hours a day, five days a week and go through these things, check, check, check. I do think there's a huge value in them building those communities together and having that time together and that learning space together and the learning while I think kids should get to quote unquote follow their passions it's also really important that they're learning stuff they don't necessarily want to learn right and that they're trying to overcome those frustrations and mm -hmm. and feel a sense of thing because if you really just let 11 year olds learn only what they want to learn yeah sh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and so how do you make you know how do you balance those things what would be the approach I don't know you know I mean I I, I I find myself calling these days on sort of the, the there's only hope if you have imagination kind of science fiction, you know, uh, view of things. And so if you can't imagine something better than, than really you're just destined for the hopelessness. Oof. So I'm trying to imagine better things because that beauty of them coming together like that is really, really lovely. Like these sixth graders do a thing that has been a tradition for many, many years pre me as a teacher that they do a portfolio presentation. And so at the end of the year, they, they do a thing where they're supposed to talk about different aspects of themselves academically and just as a learner in general outside of school. And, and we help lead them through this process. So I spent the last couple of weeks of the school year. Um, this class again was tiny. It was 11 kids, but like kind of interviewing each one of them about themselves. And I knew them pretty well because I'd spent the year with them. But still, the reason I love sixth graders is because they're at this cusp where like, it's very hard for them to be self-reflective. They're just learning yeah. how to do that. Mm -hmm. But you can watch it happening. Oh, so right? Good. 
And because I know them enough at the end of the year, I mean, this wasn't the first year I did it, but it was the first year where I knew the class as well as I did. You can prompt them like you would your own kid. You know, when they're like, you ask them a question, they're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't like writing. I'm like, yeah, but remember that time when you, Yeah. and they would be like, oh. And I also would like ask them a bunch of questions about the rest of their school life and their history and sort of like, tell me about, because sometimes you get a, a kernel from that because they turn it into the story. It's so much fun to watch people developing in front of your eyes, right? I don't know how you create something that does that for most kids, but like that's when all kids should have access to that. Um, Agreed. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. All Bye-bye. right. Take care. Bye. That was Viva. What a great episode. It has trials and tribulations and hope and dreams and a nice place to live in the woods. I love how the passion ramps up at the end when she starts talking about wanting to better serve the preteen crowd. You can hear in her voice that she's a true believer. I mean, I think she should totally start school or a program or something. I feel like many of her formative experiences are in line with my own. I'm not sure if every single one of you listeners can identify with what she talked about, but I feel like she and I would have been friends if we knew each other in the 90s. There are a lot of similarities. Of course, at some point, I chose to embrace our capitalist masters to a greater extent than she did, so our lives look very different today. Who is happier? I'm not sure how to measure that, but it sounds like she's got a good thing going on, and I totally want to visit the retreat that she lives slash works at. Thanks for being on the show, Viva, and I hope we can talk again sometime. If you want to know more about the retreat center, you can find out all about it at temenosretreatcenter.com because that's what it's called, Temenos Retreat Center. I'm sure they would love to have your business. Also, thanks for listening to the show. I hope you got something out of it, and I also hope you liked it enough to recommend it to a friend. This is purely anecdotal, but from my experience, friends love this podcast. Tell yours today, all of them. Also, like and follow and interact with all my amazing promotional posts on Instagram at Feel Free to Deviate and visit feelfreetodeviate.com if you like websites. The next episode features Adam Brilla. He's a musician who works at Jobby Job and also has a side hustle selling guitar effects in Sonic Consultation. Sounds good, right? Check it out in two weeks. Thanks again for listening, and I urge you wholeheartedly to be excellent to each other. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.